Vibe Machine Hey everyone, hoping you have checked out the first episode in this Tim Stedman series of Undercovers. As Tim explains his journey working at various design houses, quite literally they were houses, around LA and building up his reputation amongst some of the top album designers and record labels in the world. We pick up this episode talking about one of my favourite albums by a solo artist of all time. Vibe Machine. I am an enormous Husker Du fan. I am an enormous Bob Bowl fan. And yeah, I, was... I love that record. I still listen to that record. Oh, it's amazing. It's just an amazing album. I actually met Bob Mould um, a couple of years ago and I took like 40 of his vinyl and got him to st- sit outside his uh, tour bus and sign it for me. <laughs> shaking his head at me as he was doing it so um i was but he's a lovely guy and i was really really interested in how that dynamic worked because i know the story behind the workbook i know that his partner or his i think it was his ex-partner at the time had given him this workbook so i know i know that piece of the puzzle but i'm i'm interested to know how it became the album artwork and how you interacted did you i'm assuming that bob would be very hands-on he and I didn't didn't interact. I mean, it was it was definitely a, a design job. I mean, I wish we did because I mean, I have a huge uh, yeah, I have a lot of respect for him. Obviously, I told you I love that record. Mm. And if you haven't read his book, um, Seal of Light, it's pretty pretty great. I got this oh. a couple years ago and read it. Um, really, and that kind of you know lays out the story from from that mm. point of view. But yeah, he, he is a hands on guy, and the truth is, he had really built the pieces. So yeah, you know the the process kind of involved, but as my as my kind of entry point, especially those. First couple couple of records, and I sort of explained it like with the EU one mm. there. You know, Melanie was our art director over that, so she'd started these projects and had hired photographers. And in the case with Bob Mould, I think he had just taken care of that, so we sort of came in with a lot of these sort of key images. Right. So, so that record was really just me putting the putting the parts together in a way that worked for him. So, uh, I mean, I know that I, again, I made a batch of comps for that and we used a batch of those things. So they took some of those key elements apart. And I remember a poster I made that we used because most of the imagery was black and white. So some of it, mm. well, this poster I can remember, and I think maybe, maybe a single, I mean, this is quite a while ago at this point now that I used the black and white images. And then I, I think I ran sort of like color over them to create duotones with them. That's what I'm remembering from this poster because I remember that like <laughs> there's almost that little like medicine bag that's part of it. Yes, yes. And there's that little uh, Jesus-like figure on there. I, I know I took some of those pieces apart to make this poster. But um, yeah, that's kind of the the story on that. Um like the other job, I put together a batch of comps, which is just how you do it, and brought it in and had a meeting with, you know, with Melanie and the other crew there. Hmm. And Melanie's assistant at the time was a woman named Inga Shop, who's Dutch, and uh, and her boyfriend Tom Bauman, um, and I'm still friends with them. Actually, I'm supposed to do a Skype call with them because we haven't talked for maybe a year or something. Uh, they're 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 back in Holland, but Tom became my studio partner just because he right. needed a place to work. He'd be working out of the house, so we we, we weren't really. <laughs> We weren't really a company, but he came and shared that space down at MacArthur Park with me, which was cool. But because we were, yeah, we were all just kind of like friends hanging out. 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't know what, what more I can say about that. I mean, it's a, it's a record that I love, so I definitely like assembled it uh, with, with, with love in mind because I really uh, enjoyed and still enjoy listening to that record. Oh, um, and, and I'm and I'm sad that I didn't really get to meet Bob Bowl because I have a feeling like you know we'd really um, get along. We're we're kind of similar guys in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. He's 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 very very nice. Um, uh, you, you never know what to accept uh, expect because I've met him. I've met I met Grant Hart before he passed away, um, yeah. and he is a different character altogether. And everyone who's ever met him will say that he's a. Uh, He's yeah, one of a kind. Just a big, a big sweetheart, you know. Yeah, he is. He is. And and then Greg Norton, I, I actually know Greg, and Greg's lovely. So, um, you know, so they've got, but they're three different personalities, and you can sort of understand where Bob was coming from if he's gone and assembled all of these pieces ready, ready for you to put together, because or whoever to put together, because he's just come out of Huskadu where they had complete control over everything. Yeah, right? and and Graham would look after it, and Bob would oversee it. I can imagine Bob would be quite hands on with everything, so he probably just took that same approach. Um, and yeah, and I remember there being like no back and forth. I mean, literally, like the the stuff I delivered was sort of ran through him, and it was kind of like, oh yeah, here we have it. Here's this and this and this and this. So it was kind of kind of a cool. similar thing. It wasn't yeah, it wasn't like. Oh, shift this around, or I don't like that. It was, uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty kismet kind of thing. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, you'll be glad to know I have a, a vinyl copy of it hanging on my wall in my house. So nice. Yeah. So there you go. And, so, the, um, and that artwork is beautiful. I mean, like what he put together was oh, great. Stunning. So I mean, I had a huge respect for those images and and what went on there. So. Yeah. And the story is amazing. So if anyone hasn't heard the story, you should definitely check out See a Little Light. You can obviously buy the book, but you can also do the audio copy. Bob reads some pretty incredible stories. The first story in the book is incredible to hear him talk about. Um, yeah. So, yeah, he's, he's lived a very crazy life at, at times, but uh, he's a lovely guy. Um, but you sort of hit the jackpot because that album became very iconic and not just because of Bob Mole, but because of tracks like See a Little Light and all of those sort of songs and became yeah. very, 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 very big. And from there, you also, around the same time, like you were saying, you worked on Mystery Girl by Roy Orbison, who had been in the wilderness. Anything you want, you got it. Anything you need, you got it. Anything the guy had literally just. Oh um, yeah. Well, the, yeah. This is honestly, this is the real story, and this is this is quite honest. Honestly, it's what I point to as as like what sort of put me on the on the map as an album well, designer. You know, because there's other it. two things I'm that are sort of more obscure in a way. <laughs> well, it was funny. Um, I mean, it, it was before. It actually started before Bob Mould. But after after I had finished that very first project, it, and and actually it wasn't done that e, that EU job, you know, the difficult one, mm. and I just say difficult because it was just, uh, you know, it it wasn't like the images for Bob Mold that I was handed to put it together, you know, it was it was more of a struggle making something uh, cool happen out of what I had there. Um, but before I even had finished that, you know, they got it approved. And it was kind of like okay, we'll sort of build the album and you know set up the single. So those projects were going on. Melanie called me because she literally was kind of Virgin Records was my only client. So that's the other, <laughs> which I, I eventually realized was a pretty dangerous thing. But fortunately, it was a good relationship. It was the only way of surviving. They were completely, you know, creating my my income to get by this first year on my own. But <laughs> Melanie called me up 
one day, as would be the case. And she said, uh, yeah, this is going to sound like I'm an idiot. But she was like, you know, do you know who Roy Orbison is? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure my dad listened to it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm, yeah. Again, I'm, you know, 23, 24-year-old kid, probably 24-year-old kid at this point. And, uh, and she said, well, you know, I've got this record I'd like you to work on. And this is interesting too. It, it had been it had been shot already. Um, the images had been shot by Glenn Erler, who I would go on and have a really. Glenn and I would do a lot of projects together, and this was the very first one. Oh, and he made like he made amazing images for that thing. Yeah. Anyway, she said, "I want you to work on that on that project." So similarly, um, I put a lot of stuff together and went over to have a meeting with her. And again, it was a big pile of comps that I made, probably like eight or nine or something. And uh, and it was pretty clear that that cover image was was the one. I know that Jeff Aroff especially really liked the logo that I made for Orbson on that one. And I still look at that, and uh, it definitely has like some young designer issues with it. But in terms of sort of um, cleverness, I've always been kind of happy yeah. With that, the way I sort of shared the O in there. Anyways, yes. I know that Jeff Aroff really, really liked that. So it's always, it's always good when the president of the record company, you know, like <laughs> digs what the, what the guy has done for the people who are in the art department. And, and because Most he was definitely. a creative guy himself at Warner Brothers, you know. Anyways, um, but the, the eerie part of that was, you know, we got an approval on all the stuff. So it was like, okay, well, so start building, building it out. And my studio, just to describe it, I mean, it was this big, giant rectangle in these sort of typical old buildings in L.A. I'm not really sure. I mean, they probably, you know, built around the 30s or the 40s or something. But, you know, these sort of arched kind of high ceilings. It was a really raw space. So all the walls were just... Um, you know, white drywall, and the floors were just giant um, pieces of um, plywood that were put down. And then one whole side of it was just a bank <laughs> of walls. And and my studio faced into kind of a courtyard where there was like a, a Guatemalan restaurant or something behind cool. there. Um, but it's typical typical buildings that you would sort of old industrial buildings that you would find in L.A. Mm. But um, I had all because of the way we worked, you know, building mechanicals and stuff like that. I had all of these pieces laid out on the floor. So I had type laid out and I had all these pictures of where Everson laid out. And I would start working pretty early in the morning. I, I'm, I tend to be like really active in the morning and then kind of, you know, by the afternoon, I'm kind of tired. So I remember it had to have been like eight o'clock in the morning or something up at the studio. And I've got all the stuff laid out and I'm kind of getting started. I've got NPR playing, which is kind of typical of my day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and uh, I'm listening to a story and they say, a rock and roll legend died last night. Roy Orbison died in Memphis, Tennessee. And I'm like sitting here staring at this guy all over the, the floor, all oh. over my floor building his record you know and it was wow. just like so that was just a an eerie kind of crazy yeah. experience and of course that like shifted everything into hyper mode because later on that day was when i got a call that said oh my god you know like get ready just <laughs> yeah. you know this is gonna be crazy now uh yes. which was true i mean sort of sad but that's you know propels things in there mm, and it's definitely. a it's a great record you know i mean it's it an is. amazing record 
uh, the musicians on that. I mean, it's pretty much Tom Petty's crew for the most yes. part. Well, Traveling Wilburys, you know, Jeff Lynn's on that record. Uh, yep. Yeah, yep. anyways, I'm sure Ben you know. Montenius, I, th- I think they all are. Yes. So. Yep. Yeah. So. Who actually um, plays on Lyle Lover Records? We'll get to that later on, I think, oh, or, very or has cool, in the very, past. I actually, actually know a few people who know Ben Montenegro. Apparently, yeah, he's very hands-on in the LA scene, which is which is very very cool. But um, yeah, like Mystery Girl was one of the first albums my parents bought me, and I think it was just because that's cool. I mean, that's yeah, nice. I, th- I think it was because Pretty Woman had just come out, and I was, you know, I'm only I'm forty, not only, but so I was still quite young when when that was. I was only nine or ten, so Bob Mould yeah, hadn't yeah. registered in my in my you know sphere of inf- you know influence at that point. But but Roy Roy Orbison did because my parents were fans, and they were like, the kid loves music, shove him this and. Um, that's cool. It was similar. My, my parents would listen to a lot of like 60s country. So, I mean, that's why I yeah, yeah. sort of have that in there. And I did have reference points of that. You know, as dumb as I sounded at 24 when I got the phone call about that, I did have reference points, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I totally but grew up with lots of music around me, which was great. It's so cool when that happens, right? I try and do that with my kids. But um, um, so, yeah, it's a sad thing that happened. But, you know, like you said, it propelled that album and the mystique and the mystery and – Oh yeah. Well, the other the other fun piece of that thing was, you know, at that time as I'm building all of that, you know, it doesn't really happen anymore. But you know, uh, Tower on on Sunset Boulevard, which literally was only six blocks from where that first office was that I had, would have <laughs> these giant displays. There were about three of them that could go on the on the front yes. that would face Sunset, uh, and it was this place called Tony and Joni in the Valley that that painted them, you know, they sort of handmade them. But, you know, Melanie called and she said, Oh, well, because of how huge this record is, we're gonna we're gonna do one of those. So you should make one. And cool. she's like, you could do anything you want. I'm like, I can do anything I want. And she said, You <laughs> you can do anything you want. And it well, you're familiar with the cover, so you realize that it's the same image sort of upside down as it is yes. right inside yes. the mystery. Yep. That's <laughs> um, right. And I said, "Can I motorize that thing and put it over?" She's like, "She's like, oh hell yeah!" She's like, "Please do that." <laughs> so they did two of these because they did it at the um, tower in San Francisco and the tower in LA. But yeah, it was crazy while that was up because I would get to drive by that thing and just watch my record cover sort of spin around in the front of Tower Sunset. <laughs> and again, I'm like a 24 year old kid who shows up from Texas. You know, it's like, how did this happen to me? You know, it's, it's such a cool thing, and you know, you sort of. You know, you fell in, you know, well, you sort of worked your way or, or, or fell into the music industry in a way. And and you're suddenly working on one of the biggest alternative artists who literally helps break, break Nirvana a couple of years later. And then, you, and then, you know, at the same time, you're working on an icon who's passed away. So you've sort of hit the the jackpot with those two. And, of course, you're still working on the the EU album constantly, I can imagine, in between. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, it was a crazy time, you know, yeah, but, yeah. But, but super fun time, you know. Oh, most definitely. And and look, I wanted to jump from there. So I'm so glad I got to find out about Mystery Girl because I think I was, I'm at my parents' house, they would still have that that cassette or CD or whatever they had it on. But the next one that I wanted to jump to, and it's another icon, iconic artist, and it's Devo. You put together the greatest hits package, did you not? Greatest hits and misses, which was really funny. Yeah, yeah, that, was, yeah. that was when I was actually working at, at Warner Brothers. So, yeah, that comes not too long after that. He, um, 
Yeah, because I I sort of did things backwards. Like most people would sort of be in house at a record company, and then and then they might be a freelancer or something. <laughs> uh, so it was a little bit odd that I kind of like had my own studio and then went into Warner Brothers, and and that was that was kind of a weird thing because Warner Brothers was so big; they were like the biggest. They were sort of the biggest record company on the block at that point. They definitely had mm. the biggest art department. So from an art department point of view, it was a big stable, lots of people working there. It was mm. it was kind of like the dream place to work. But they would need people to come and sit in for their art directors. Um, Tom Rashawn, I don't know if you've talked with him. He's a great guy. would be great guy for you to talk to as well. Cool. And he's still a friend of mine. Um, he needed somebody to sit in for him, you know, because they would have to go to New York for a shoot or something. So I would come in and sit in for a, a week. Anyways, this is just kind of like how how I moved from the studio into mm. a, a record company, which is where then I would work on the Devo project, was they would have me sit in. And, and so I'd be there for a week and then it would be like, OK, well, now, you know, Terry's going to go to New York. So could you just move over to her office and sit in for her stuff? And they were really cool because they knew I had the studio. So they were like, mm. you could do your own project. So. I was probably building records for Virgin or A&M or something at the same time while I was at Warner Brothers, <laughs> which was, you know, I mean, that was pretty cool because it's like, well, I got to keep the studio going. Yeah, yeah. And, cool. it, and it was kind of weird at a certain point where I was like, well, I've got this studio over here. But they uh, they offered me a, a job, you know, um, after I had been there for maybe like a month or something. They were like, oh, well, a couple of people are leaving. I think Marianne Dibbs was leaving and somebody else was leaving. So that's how I got into Warner Brothers. And yeah, that um, those were sort of, I mean, I like the idea that it was sort of two records. And if mm. you've seen both of the covers, it's, yes. I mean, it was just sort of imagery that I, you know, put together, off, you know, using Xerox machines. Because I think like that, that's probably like literally at the cusp of when the computer introduces itself. That yeah, was kind I of the other good thing was at Warner Brothers, they just wheeled these computers into all of our offices and nice. just kind of like, okay, figure out how to use them. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, Xerox definitely fund, helped the creativity of artwork across the music industry in the, oh, in yeah. the 80s at least because I think everyone I've spoken to has talked about being at a Xerox shop at 2 a.m. in the morning. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, to get something done because the only thing was open and they had all these wonderful yeah. printers no one knew how to use. <laughs> when, when Robert Fisher was saying that in the interview with him, I was like, oh, yeah, I totally, totally get it. Uh, very cool, very cool. But you – so so you sort of you, – you put together the Devo one. And what was that like? Because you, you, you were grabbing elements of this iconic band who – at different parts in their career, have had iconic iconic imagery. You've got oh, yeah, Mark, they had great, great yeah, stuff, got, you know. And you've got Mark Mothersbrough, who who I've interviewed a few people who who have worked with him, and they said he's very hands on, lovely guy, but he knows what he wants. And, but you know, it was really it was really Jerry Casale who was who okay. who was, you know that that was kind of the the liaison for that. From right. that point, so that that was really who. I mean, I'm I'm sure the people in the band were checking it out, but that that right. was who the the contact was. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure what the you know. I mean, it was one of those greatest hits things, so this could have been. I don't really know the backstory, and I was really new to a record company at that point. So this is just you know me much years later with more experience, kind of imagining it. But I'm sure that's something that you know contractually they wanted to put yeah. out or something. <laughs> They've got one more album they've go. got to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. But creatively, it was pretty free for me in terms of those those covers. Um, cool. But they, 
it's funny. Very few people even know those covers because I don't think it was really widely publicized or something. I mean, I don't know how that how that went. And they always had really, really great stuff. But mm. the, I think the way I think through something is probably pretty pretty evident what those two covers are. And it was sort of fun having the two of them to play off of each other. So it was just yes. kind of a color game and altering what goes on with the image there. Yeah, yeah, because they're, 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 they're the same image, just sort of inverted, aren't they? Yeah, well, one one misses and one hits. So, that, yes, so there yes. you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very cool, very cool. Um, but you also worked on, and I mentioned this in an email to you, and you, you sort of said, well, this will be a great introduction to talk about someone else. But I was interested because being Australian, Jimmy Barnes is still to today one of the biggest artists in Australia um, from a very iconic band called Cold Chisel out here um, who never really broke in the States but are, are regarded as, you know, icons in the Australian music industry and Jimmy Barnes solo is as well. And one of his biggest albums is Two Fires. That you at least have a credit on. <laughs> no, yeah, it's... yeah. Well, Tom, actually, the studio partner I mentioned before, Tom, Tom Ballin, we we're, we're both credited on that. I, yeah, I mean, I knew that you were probably going to ask about that because it was Australian. <laughs> and I wish, you know, I just wish I had more. I mean, I think it's a case of, you know, this was going to be a U.S. release of that, of mm. something that was huge from somewhere else. So, um, uh, you know, so it was the job of, you know, here we've got to do a, a U.S. version of this. I mean, and that's right. kind of the best recollection I have of that. I'm <laughs> I'm sure that something that Tom and I worked on together, when I look at it, it looks like that. I mean, I can sort of see us both there in a, in a simple way, if that makes any sense. And um, I would probably be the only person that could recognize that or see it. But I have I have like zero <laughs> zero recollection beyond that. And I know that that's probably like a huge disappointment in terms of a story no. for you but but i can't no, really make anything up for you no that. no it, it, i just found it i just found it odd that for for an artist that hadn't really broken in in america i mean he'd done a duet with in excess for the lost boys soundtrack and that sort of had got him some some fame in america but uh so i was just i was i was it was pure curiosity is why why would american record label be getting Jimmy Barnes artwork done. That shouldn't. Well, surely that would be Australia, but it makes sense when you've sort of got the collateral and you're making a US version of it. It could be. I mean, so who? What was the record company in Australia? Uh, Festival Mushroom, which is part wow. Of the that's pretty interesting because I think Mushroom was also wasn't that wasn't that Gary Ashley that was part of that. Because he know. was an AR guy Michael, at MCA. When I eventually get to MCA, Gary Ashley would be there at MCA Records, and I'm pretty sure that he was like a key of Mushroom Records or something. Uh, I mean, like, all the stuff sort of kind of like runs together at a yeah, certain yeah. point. <laughs> well, look, well, look, let's let's leave Jimmy Barnes alone. That that album is great. I, I do love that album. It's another album that I have in my collection. But I wanted to go completely left of field. And the thing I love about your career, and as we keep talking everyone, you're going to find out how left of field it gets. I mean, this is the man who put together Enema of the State, the album that seems to be hitting the internet daily at the moment, lots of talk about it. But you, to go completely left of field, you got into gangster rap. All right, we've cut the episode right there, giving you a bit of an idea where the next episode is headed, and it's straight into the rap world. And then we head into punk and the Ramones, and from there, live, Blink-182, Lyle Lovett, and so much more. 
So please check out that episode and all the others in Undercovers. Thank you so much for listening so far. Vibe. Machine.